chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Thank you so much for the fine singing this morning, for that special, for the church, uh, for the choir, for their special as well. While you're turning, let me slightly embarrass somebody here. George and Carol, would you stand up for a moment, please? They celebrated 50 years of wedded bliss this past week. Congratulations. Congratulations to you folks. And Carol, we're praying for you, sister. Oh, man. Man, hey, birthday this week. Okay, let's see. Where, where are they? All the way second to last pew. Mr. Pollock, you're celebrating your 16th birthday this week, plus a whole lot of anniversaries of it. 90 years this week, right? 90 years. God bless you, Jim. Congratulations on your birthday. This week... I think it's Friday. Friday is your birthday, correct? You got it. Very good. So, uh, we're not trying to embarrass people, okay? And I don't remember everybody's birthday, so somebody's going to say, you forgot mine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can forget mine, and I'll be fine with that as well. We, um, we are studying the life of Elijah, and let me get started this morning with this kind of a thought. There was an article I was reading. It says, you know, live in a small town when, Okay. And some of you will say, yes, that's our town. You know you're in a small town when the local airport has grass on it. That's about every one of the airports around here, isn't it? You know you're in a small town when every sport is played in dirt and the big rivalry, rivalry between teams is between the hardware store and the local restaurant. You, you know you're in a small town when you don't even need to use your turn signals because everyone else knows where you're going. <laughs> You're in a small town when the pickup trucks on Main Street outnumber the cars three to one. You know you're in a small town. Now, this is dated, obviously. You dial the wrong number, you end up talking for 30 minutes anyway. You know you're in a small town when you miss church on Sunday and you start receiving get well cards by Wednesday. You know you're in a small town when someone asks you how you are doing and then they pull up a chair and actually listen to what you have to say. We don't have those small towns much anymore, do we? In fact, there's an article that I was talking about. It was an editorial bemoaning the fact that we're losing that, that interaction between people. The article went on to talk about a couple that was uh, there working in the yard. The moving truck was there. They were fixing up a few odds and ends. And one of the neighbors down at the other side of the cul-de-sac came walking by and noticed that they were working on the yard and came running up and said, well, welcome, welcome, welcome to our neighborhood. It is so good to have you. The couple that was working in the yard weren't sure what to say. And finally, after a few seconds of awkwardness, they said, well, we've been living here for three years and we're moving out. That's the way it goes for a lot of us. We don't even know the people living in our same neighborhood. You know, that idea of having contact, that idea of having a friend. Harry Truman put it this way. He was talking and lamenting the fact that D.C., when he was there, and this was decades ago, he said, if you want a real friend in Washington, D.C., I would advise getting a dog. Because friends just are rare. They're rare in life. Uh, There was a church that I know of, and the pastor decided, what do you do is do a survey of the children. And asking the children, who oftentimes have the greatest insight, what is a friend? Describe a friend. Here are some of their comments. A friend is someone who is nice. Someone who likes you a whole lot. Someone who comes and plays with your dog. A friend is someone who comes over, plays with your toys and that kind of stuff. A friend is one who tells you the truth. I bet you he got a lecture. Whoever that kid was got a lecture about telling the truth. The idea is someone who gives you presents. Someone who gives you flowers like my daddy gives my mommy flowers on Mother's Day. A friend is someone who cheers you up when you're sad. A friend is someone who cares for you when you're hurt. 
there was a, a contest done in a British magazine, and they asked to find a friend, to find a friend. And this was the winning definition. It said, someone who comes in when the whole world has gone out. That's a friend. And there are times and moments that we all need these people. We all want these people. We all crave for these people. Not necessarily do we provide it for others, but this is something we all want. And there's times where we need it. First Kings tells us a story of a man of God who is in desperate situations. When we left him last, as we were going paragraph by paragraph through the story, he's sitting in a cave. He has come to the end of himself. He had started off that he was having a phenomenal ministry. Revival was breaking out. And all of a sudden he gets threatened by the rulers in charge. They don't want the revival. They want to keep their gods and their power. And so they send a threatening note, the king's wife, Jezebel. And so Elijah runs into the wilderness. And he gets so discouraged, so distraught that he says, I want to die. He's traveling for dozens and dozens of miles. He leaves his servant. He isolates himself. He goes into the wilderness and into a cave. And there in the cave in the wilderness, God comes to him and says, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're saying you're not as good as others. You want to die. What are you doing here? And he responds, I, I only have served the God. I'm the most faithful. And they're seeking my life. And he's whining and complaining to the Lord God about God not being fair to him. God sends the fire, wind, and an earthquake, shakes up the mountain. And then God comes in a still small voice and says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I've just displayed myself. What are you doing here? And he argues again with God. Then God gives him some advice, some counsel. And he sets things straight. You're not the only one. And, you know, here's the way things should be. But in this text, God tells him something that is a critical moment for the rest of his ministry. It's found, as you go through the passage, in the middle of verse 16. In 1 Kings 19, verse 16. This is in that conversation in the cave. He says in the middle of the verse, And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room. At this moment, God is telling him that what you need to do is you need to find somebody that can help you to be a prophet in your room. Now, it is not, God is not saying, and some of us, when we first read this, this is our response, God is not saying, I've had it with you, you're done, that's it, you're going to be replaced, you're, you know, I'm not going to put up with your discouragement, your depression, you should never be like that, you're out of here. Get, a new, get somebody in your place. That's not fully the passage. Because as we go through the rest of the account, he's going to minister for God for another 10 years. And he's going to even minister to King Ahab. He's going to go and confront other peoples that, that had threatened him. And then in 2 Kings 2, a few chapters later, he gets one of the most glorious entrances into heaven that any Old Testament saint experienced. This isn't a penalty. This is something that Elijah desperately needed. God says, Elijah, to help you to recover, to help you to move forward, you need a friend. You need somebody that you can minister and somebody who can minister to you. That's a friend. And God says, I want you to go and find this fellow. I've picked out a friend for you. His name is Elisha. And he's the guy you need. He's the guy who needs you at this moment. And so go find him and get together. And a question I have this morning is this. Okay, what is it in Elisha's life that God said would make a good companion, friend, encouragement to Elijah? 
Well, I know this about him. I know his name is God is my salvation, so he grew up in a worshiping home. I know that he lives in a territory, in a region, in northern Israel, back where Ahab and Jezebel are in charge. He's there, he's experienced all the guff and all the grief that they've been given, the people of, of the Lord, and yet he's, he's got a servant's heart, as we'll see in the text. I know that he lives in a town that's called the Valley or the Meadow of Joy. It's an area that, that they love to celebrate, to dance, to carry on. I know that his dad's name is Shapheth. I don't know anything else, and neither do you, about his family. That's it. And we're first introduced to him when Elijah leaves the cave and goes and finds... When Elijah... I'm going to do this again. I'm going to mix the two names up. So understand what I mean, not what I'm saying at times. Good luck. Okay. The God, God tells us about Elisha when Elijah goes and meets him in the next couple verses. In the next couple verses, this is the first inkling we have of this man who ends up serving God for 60 years after this, who ends up doing twice as many miracles as Elijah does, who is called in Scripture the, a man of God 26 times more than any other person in Bible. Here's where we get introduced to him. In chapter 19, verse 16, it mentioned, go and anoint him, and then Elijah goes and travels back up north. He travels to the kingdom of Ahab and Jezebel. And it says in verse 19, He departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphath, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth yoke. Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen, that is Elisha, leaves the oxen and runs after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah says to Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned back from him, that is Elisha, returns back from Elijah, and took a yoke of oxen, slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they did eat. And then arose and went after Elisha rose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. There's not a whole lot of information, and yet there is. There's in this brief little account from the verses, we learn what type of person he is. We learn that, and, and these are characteristics that God said were compelling to say, this is the guy you need. One of those, and I'm not giving them an order of importance. I'm just going to walk through the text. God says there's one thing about Elisha that was commendable is his hardworking venture, his hardworking attitude. Now, I'm not exactly sure how this plays out. And uh, there's different pictures, there's different summaries. Some say that there's the 12 yoke of oxen, that he was behind the 12th, that basically they were all in a line, preferably pictured in the idea that 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, and he was attached to all 12, and he was behind the 12th pair of oxen. That's a possibility that that's the case. Or it's the possibility that, that he was... The twelfth man with a set of oxen. That basically what was happening was there's twelve different sets of oxen with a servant, oxen with a servant, oxen with a servant, and the last one coming through the field was Elisha, and he was basically the crew leader, guiding and directing it. However it was, what we, we don't know. But we know this, just by implication. He's not afraid to work. He's not an individual who doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. It's a, it, he's following already what King Solomon had already talked about as far as hardworking individual. There's lots of verses that talk about the idea that you and I are supposed to be hardworking. Gathering in the summer is wisdom. Preparing, planning, those types of things. We can jump through a variety of passages that talk about the hand of the diligent. Bearing rule. The soft flow will be under tribute. We can look at passages that recommend that what we should do is we should be 
friends with those type of individuals who are hardworking lest we learn the laziness of an attitude. And so we have the commendable trait of a hardworking individual. That's one thing we know about him. But I think in the text, going a little bit deeper, there's something else that stands out about him that God said, this is the type of person you need. Somebody who isn't afraid of work. Somebody who's not afraid of getting his hands dirty because, Elijah, you're living in the wilderness. You're not living in comfort. You need somebody who, who isn't afraid to be in a rugged situation, hardworking. You need somebody who has humility. Because what happens here is he's saying, you need to appoint Elisha in your stead. You need to teach him. You need to train him. And in order to teach somebody, they have to be teachable. To be teachable requires what? Humility. And so he's saying, this is the guy you need. This guy has a humble spirit. By the way, Elijah, what have you been struggling with the last few days? I, I only am the only one that is left. I, I have done so much for the Lord. You need somebody to kind of come alongside you with a humble spirit and say, uh, we're not that good. Uh, we don't deserve all these blessings. Uh, you aren't as important as you think you are in God's work. And so you need somebody with humility. And so what he does is he gives us an indication that this guy, obviously from a wealthy family, a wealthy family that has enough land that they need 12 different oxen, pairs of oxen to do the plowing, probably servants, indicates that this guy who is part of this family who owned this much land, he is out there plowing it as well. He is not above the idea of doing servant's work. He has a humility. In fact, at the very last few phrases of chapter 19, it says he goes and ministers okay, to Elisha. And it indicates that he also slaughtered his oxen and served all the people. That he did it. He slaughtered. He did the serving. And so this guy's got a humble spirit. He is not afraid of work. He is not afraid of serving other people if it requires him doing hard work, him doing menial tasks, him doing something as difficult. For me, it would be difficult. Doing as difficult as slaughtering an animal and cooking it and feeding everybody. Me, I could order out really good. But doing this preparation, that's not my cup of tea. This guy's humble. This guy's willing to do those things. And he's one that isn't saying, okay, I know everything. I've grown enough. I'm an individual who who I can tell Elijah, Elijah where he made mistakes and how he needs to get his act together. That's not Elisha. Elisha portrays from the very beginning a humble spirit. That's a friend that you want. Somebody with a humble spirit, but at the same time, they're not afraid of doing the difficult tasks. Let's go a little bit further. That talks about, oh, I know what I had here, was just to remind you that humility in the New Testament is a quality that Jesus really labors, belabors before his disciples. He reminds them how important humility is. Whosoever shall humble himself as a little child, the same is great in heaven. God's idea of real servanthood, God's idea of great servants are people who are humble. In fact, we read in Jesus' comments, you know the Gentiles exercise great authority over people. They love to be noticed. They love to be in charge. But it shall not be so among you who are my followers. Whosoever will be great among you, let him serve you. Let him be a table waiter. That's the word that's used here. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be the servant. He goes on, even as the Son of Man came not to be minister, but to minister and to give his life for many. 
The point is humility is found in scriptures as being one of the greatest qualities that you and I can be working on. Jesus Christ said when he is washing the feet of the disciples, he has wrapped it all up, he sits back down and he starts discussing. He says, if I, your master, have done something so menial, so servant-oriented, because the one who would wash the feet was the lowest servant in the house, if I was willing to do that, you should have the same attitude. Serve others, even people you, you don't agree with. Remember the disciples were arguing before they got into that house for that meal? Remember how when Peter said, when Jesus said, you're gonna, some of you are going to deny me, and Peter says, I believe all these other guys can deny you, but never will I. I won't do it. There wasn't a humility, and Jesus is saying, you guys need this humility. You need to be able to have a servant's attitude. And you and I need to pause and say, now wait a minute, this is something that God says is exceptional and is required in our life. So you and I have to ask ourselves the questions. Okay, is there, is there a portrayal of genuine humility in our lives where we will do menial tasks without being noted for it? Where we are willing to serve other individuals. Where we don't have to be the center of the attention of the gathering and do all the talking and everybody know about me and what I think. That at times we can be quiet. That at times we are teachable instead of having to be the one that has to teach. That we are okay with others being elevated above us, before us, recognized before we are recognized. Humility. And God, that's what Elijah needed, somebody with humility, a good friend that would help him to keep proper perspective with humility, who would be able to go through these difficult times living off the land. This, and again, I didn't do these in order of importance, but I think we're with obviously starting to move up another level. Elisha was spiritually sensitive. That is a trait that is really amazing in this text. The reason I say he's spiritually sensitive is this. The story has it that as Elijah is walking by, Elijah takes off his mantle and he throws it over Elisha's shoulders as he's running the tractor and Elijah keeps on walking. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I because this isn't our culture, but back in those days, this was a very cultural act that what happens is when you throw the cloak on, when you place the mantle on somebody, when a father was was giving authority to the son, he would take his cloak, his outer garment, that one, uh, that one most recognizable outfit, and give it to the son or put it on the son's shoulder or the servant in charge. And that would indicate that they are the successor. They are the new authority. So when Elisha does this, this is basically a symbolic statement without a word. Not a word has to be spoken because they understood it. Elisha knew uh, who Elijah was. Everybody knew who Elijah was. I mean, the kings knew about him. They recognized him. Remember, they're living up in that country, up in this Abel Mahola, is up in that northern region where Elijah just had ministry, where he's been preaching and teaching for three and a half years, where there's been the drought, where there's been the contest with the um, prophets of Baal. So Elisha knows who Elijah is. And in fact, if you go into chapter one of the next book, it talks about how people recognize Elijah just by his attire. Because he was such a rugged man. And everybody knew about it. So when this rugged man comes by and throws the cloak, Elisha knew what this meant. This was Elijah marking him as his successor. The lead prophet to be. The, the prophet elect. And Elisha responds to that. Elisha has a decision to make. Does he give back the mantle? 
Does he say, no, not me? Does he recognize and say, God has told Elijah to choose me to be the next leading prophet down the road? How does he respond? It says in the text he ran after Elijah. And if you notice the conversation they had, there is no hesitation in Elisha's voice to say, I don't want to do this. In fact, he says, I pray thee, let me go back and kiss my parents goodbye, and then I'll follow you. He is spiritually sensitive to all of a sudden a conversation that was without words, but by the convicting of the Holy Spirit. When by the act of the prophet of God, Elisha knew what God wanted him to do. He understood it, and his response was, I will do it. Spiritually sensitive. Spiritually sensitive to God's leading. In fact, you and I read this text, and let's be careful with sometimes. Remember there's phrases like Jesus speaking to Mary when they're at the wedding of Cana, and, and she says, you know, do whatever Jesus says. And the English, the old English reads, woman, what have I to do with you? And it sounds harsh. And I even present it that way. But it was an idiom that was a very, very proper and endearing idiom back in those days when he said those words, woman, what have I to do with you? It's the idea of very respectful speech. This is an idiom. This idiom that Elijah does in response isn't like, why? Yeah, I don't care what you do. That's not it at all. Or I'm not forcing you to do it. That's not it. It basically says, you know, you do what you need to do. I'm not stopping you. Go ahead, say goodbye, and then join me. It's a very polite, common idiom. You do as you please. It's not a rebuke. It's not a sarcastic statement. It's just go ahead. Go back, say goodbye, and then join me. And so you have the indication here that Elijah is a spiritually sensitive individual. Can I build upon that a second? He actually does serve the Lord. He just doesn't talk about it. He doesn't say, I'm going to join you, and then doesn't follow through. He's not like the individual who says, yes, I'm going to pray and read my Bible you know, every day, and then never does, does it. He's not the individual who says, I'm going to give out gospel tracts you know, because uh, it's been a convicting message, but then never does it. He's not the type that says, I'm going to work on my marriage, but then week after week comes back and has never done what the counselor has told him to do for the homework for that week. Elijah, Elisha is one of those individuals that when he makes a commitment, he follows through. Now that's commendable. He says, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say goodbye to my family, my mother, my father. And what happens in this text is very interesting, where he says, let me go back. I know what God wants me to do. God wants me to leave my family and to go with you. I'm going to travel with you. Now, think this through. Okay? He's going to travel, as he, when he says goodbye, with a not-so-popular guy. Do you remember, for the last months, Elijah has been hunted He's, he's wanted, number one, down in the local post office. His picture's there, most wanted man in northern Israel. They've been trying to get him, and then they threatened to kill him. And now Elisha says, yeah, I'll go with you. I'll be your buddy. This is a challenge. This is the difficulty. This guy who's, who's used to living in comfort, this guy who's used to living where they've got servants, and yes, he's working in the field, but he can go and lay in a bed, and maybe a, you know, a double bed. He can do that. But now he's going to follow this prophet who this prophet lives in the wilderness. He's a rugged man. This is God's call upon his life to go into a threatening situation, to go and do something that's not comfortable, to see and to hear that there's been persecution for the last few years against all the prophets of God, that what few were left went into hiding besides Elijah. 
And so Elisha is going to, he's going to bite the bullet. He's going to move forward. He's going to put himself in the fray of the lion's den. This is a big time challenge for him. He's willing to do it. Not just talk about it, but he's actually willing to do it. In fact, what he does is he barbecues his bridges. He goes back and he slaughters the oxen that he's been plowing with. You know how sometimes we use those phrases and that idea of burning the bridges. You go back in history and you find out story after story of how these leaders and these conquerors go into different regions and they wanted to symbolically say to their men, we're moving forward. You, you go into India. Alexander the Great is in there. His troops are going along and they're getting all kinds of treasure and loot and they're loading up their carts and in India all of a sudden they realize that all this treasure they're getting, Alexander says, slowing us down. So he stands before all of his troops and he says, I want them to burn my wagons. Now this is important stuff to him. This is going to help his empire keep on growing. It's going to fund it. But because he had this concept of moving forward, moving forward, he had them burn his wagons. Then he ordered his generals to bring their wagons and burn their wagons. And then he put out the order, all the troops burn your wagons. They're burning their bridges behind them to keep on moving forward. You go Julius Caesar going into Gaul. They put the together, and it's, it's one of those engineering feats in military activity that is still looked at as how he so quickly moved the troops into Gaul, crossed the river, put these floating bridges back in the ancient day, put together, gets his troops on the other side. After they made these marvelous engineering feats of floating bridges, you know what he did with the bridges? He burned them so his troops couldn't go back across when they're engaged in battle literally burn the bridges. You go into, into Cortez coming into Americas and doing his plundering and his, his raping of the, of the ancient peoples living here. But when he left Cuba to come to Mexico in that region that we know as Mexico today, what he did is he destroyed the ships. Some say they burnt them, others say they just dismantled them. But he destroyed the ships so that his troops, as they were marching through, would not be tempted to sail back to Cuba where it was easier. Stories of George Washington during the height of one of the battles here in America. There's a bridge over there. And the battle's taking place here. When he noticed the bridge was still intact over there, he told one of his officers, go burn the bridge so the troops weren't tempted to go across the river via that bridge. And he made the comment that day, today we either die or win. That's the idea of burning bridges. Okay, that happens in those causes. Well, Elijah, Elisha has a cause. <laughs> I'll tell you one. Th this is not the way to do it. 1847, there's a wagon train going from Indiana, Illinois, headed out to California. They're halfway through. And they got up after camping this one day, time, and uh, the one man sent to the wagon master the, the message. He said, I'm having really problems, domestic problems, is the way he put it according to the diary of, of this account. We're having domestic problems, and I'm not able to move along. They come back, and the wagon master with others, and they come back, and they find out that what the issue is, is the man's wife, after traveling this distance, is mad. She is not moving. She's sitting on the ground. She's got all the kids around them. I think it's a half dozen or eight kids. They're sitting around them, and she won't let them move and get into the wagon to take off. The diary account of this says, after three and a half hours of trying to persuade her, it was of no avail. So the other men in the wagon train, along with the husband, picked up the kids and put them in the wagon. And they started off. And the wife is sitting there on the ground. And they're moving off into the distance. They, the husband kind of turns. He's the last wagon, turns, and he sees his wife get up, and she's you know, making kind gestures towards him. And mad, and all of a sudden she walks into a wooded area. And so they're going, and according to the account, about an hour and a half or two hours later, he decides to send the oldest boy back with a horse just to check up on mom. 
So the oldest boy is gone, and they are in the wagon train. They had to do some traversing, and they kind of wrapped around into an S-shape because there's a river there following. And when they came around one of the bend in the river, the wife had cut across the, the woods, and there she was standing in the middle of the road. And she is going to have it out with her husband. So the two of them get into this pretty heated argument. And the husband says, where's John? I sent John back to find you. She says, I saw him, I picked up a rock, and I knocked him out. And the husband now is panicking, okay, maybe she killed our son on top of this. And so he gets on the horse, another horse, and he starts riding back to find the son. He's riding back, and as he's riding back, he meets the son. Not too far. The son's coming. He says, I don't know where mom is. She just, well, mom's back at the wagon. They turn around, and they see commotion. You know, they see some things happening as they over, come over the crest, and there's commotion all around the wagon. She was so mad, she started their wagon on fire. She's burning their bridges. Now, she got the kids out. But then she started burning all their earthly possessions. The story goes that others in the wagon train came. They tried to salvage what they could. And the woman tried to stop them. And it was a real fiasco. And they get the fire out. They lose the top, some of the furniture. And the husband has had it. And the husband goes in the woods, gets a switch, and he beats up his wife. What happens after that? I don't know. The diary stopped at that point. <laughs> ha! That's a hanging story for you guys. That is not what we're talking about, burning your bridges and creating a problem. What we're talking about is what Elijah does. And this is interesting. Elisha kills the oxen, and it says in this passage that he celebrates it. They do a feast. Remember, this is the, this is the valley of dancing. Look at the sense of this passage, which to me is a phenomenal implication. It says, He returned back with him, took the yoke of oxen, slew them, boiled their flesh and the instruments of the oxen, gave to the people, and they did eat. The idea is they celebrated. It is a positive thing. Look at this through. Look, think this through. That Elisha, even though he mentioned he's leaving, leaving conference of home, even though he's yoking up with a not-so-popular man, even though he's starting on a nomadic lifestyle, he was giving up a fortune, a future fortune, He's celebrating his service to God. Usually in our concept is, oh my, I'll go to the mission field and I'll serve Jesus. And it's such a miserable concept that we're going to suffer. He's got the concept that I'm going to be able to serve God and it's a time of celebration. It's a time of victory. It's a time of joy. It's like when people get baptized, we should rejoice in it. It's like when people say, I'm going to serve the Lord and give my life to a vocational ministry. We should rejoice in it. We should celebrate that there, that there's a moment of victory when a young person says, you know, I'm dedicating my life to the Lord, whatever the Lord would have me to do. Car salesman, preacher, missionary, factory worker. We should celebrate the attitude of wanting to serve Jesus Christ. And so here he is, an individual who actually served the Lord, that celebrated a desire to go and serve the Lord because he thought the cause was worth it. There's a fellow out of history, Henry Durant, 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 that he was a businessman out of Switzerland. He wanted to make his fortune, and he had an idea that he could sell some items to Napoleon, and he would become really, really rich. So he's so convinced that his, his idea was great. He travels to Paris. He's going to meet with Napoleon and set up this contract where he can make you know, just millions of, of francs. And so he gets there and finds out Napoleon is actually in the battle. He's leading troops 
you know, in a distance away. So the man, Dunant, travels to that area because he's convinced he's got this, this cause in mind, making money. He travels to the battlefield, and the story goes from his own writing that as he comes up over the hill and where the battle's taking place, it's just the beginning. The trumpets are sounding. He sees the charge of some of the cavalry. He sees the troops going down into the battlefield in their, in their lines. He sees and hears the cannon. He, the smoke is, is all of a sudden coming and getting in his nostrils. He hears the clashing of the swords. He feels the thundering of the horses as they're going by. And he sees the horror of war as men are dropping, as limbs are being severed. He is so moved by the battle scene that he stayed the next three weeks, never met with Napoleon, but stayed the next three weeks ministering to the casualties left on the battlefield, helping them to get indoors, helping them to get out of the weather, providing what he could. He had no skill set other than motivated by a cause which changed his entire life. The cause for him came to be caring for people who were injured. Caring for individuals who were suffering because of the conflicts of war or other causes. In fact, he started to, to work to get others behind this cause. He ends up winning the Nobel Prize and he takes the money and from that he organizes what we know as the Red Cross. Trying to assist, trying to help because his cause changed his life. That's exactly what happens with Elisha. The cause of serving the Lord, being able to do something for God, being able to assist the man of God, that was so compelling he left his family behind. You, you have stories of, of, of peoples who, like this young man, C.T. Studd, who grew up in England, oldest of four brothers, or, of, or four boys, the oldest brother. And in that time, in that culture, the oldest got the inheritance, Period. And his dad had made a fortune with his factory. And so here he is, a young man who's bound to be rich by all of the standards of that day to be one of the wealthiest men there in England. But he gets saved. He, he played the rich man's son thing. He was a professional cricket player by the age of 16. At age 18, he goes to a church service. He gets saved. He initially doesn't get real f on fire for the Lord, but over the next couple of years, he gets into a Bible study, and he is now starting to think, I need to serve the Lord. I need to serve the Lord. I need to serve the Lord. What happens, his dad dies when he's 23. He gets this massive fortune. He is so compelled to want to serve the Lord that he is motivated by the cause that he gives most all the money away to three different individuals. One of them is uh, George Mueller. With those, with those orphanages. The other is Hudson Taylor, who has missions going in China. The other is a young upstart preacher just starting to hold campaigns in Europe who comes from the Chicago area. Era, area. His name is D.L. And then what he does with what little he has left, he goes to the mission field in Africa. He also ends up working in China and also ends up working in India. And he said this, in the latter part of his life. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for him. How true. How true. Here he is, an individual, Eli, like Elisha, that says, I'll make a sacrifice and guarantee nobody in heaven is regretting making a sacrifice and actually serving. That's the type of friend that Elijah needed. Somebody who would actually serve the Lord. Something else that we want to point out besides hard working, humility, spiritually sensitive, actually serving the Lord. Let's add a couple things. Okay? I've made comment already that all this together makes him an outstanding character in Scripture. How he is noted in Scripture. Let me give number five. 
He has an attitude of serving God by serving others. Serving God by serving others. He arose, it says, in the very last phrase, and went and ministered to Elijah. This is for a period of 10 years. This, think this through. Even though he, is, he knows he's the successor, he knows he's the prophet-elect, he still sits in the shadows for 10 years. He knows that down the road, when he's serving God, God is going to use him in great ways, he sits in the shadows for 10 years. He's serving. He's serving. Willing to serve this old man. This man that others want nothing to do with him. In fact, I want you to go to 2 Kings and I want you to see a phrase that is to me one of the most convicting phrases I've ever read in Scripture to date in this whole study. In 2 Kings chapter 3, there's a phrase. This is given years later. Years after Elijah is gone. Elisha is the new prophet in charge. He's the president prophet throughout this region. He's leading everything. And when they are talking about, oh, how do we find a prophet? How do we find a prophet? One of the kings is saying, how do we inquire of the Lord? And it says in verse 11, King Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the kings of Israel's servants said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And it, it, here's his identifying quality. Here is his most marked accomplishment. Here is what he is known for as a prophet. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. What's that mean? No commentator seems to know. Was it ceremonial? I don't know. Was it that the old man had arthritis in his hands and needed somebody to provide comfort and he would pour hot water over his hands to give him some relief? I don't know. But he is known for doing a menial task. He's not known for his preaching. He's not known for his, his pension. He's not known for the powerful miracles. What they identify this man as, he was willing to serve others. That's his trait. That's his characteristic that brings the attention of the kings of Judah and Israel when they're looking for a man of God. Somebody who will serve and do menial tasks. Amazing. Amazing. Here he is, an individual who does the simple but significant. Then you and I have to stop and say, is that like us? I don't agree with the guy's theology. But reading the story of Schweitzer when he came to America and was starting a tour after he had won the, the Nobel Prize, he's in Chicago. They stop at the train station. Reporters are gathering because they want to they interview him. They want to know what is going on. And as they're starting the interview of this world-renowned speaker, philosopher, you know, hum, human, uh, humanitarian, and, and this now the winner of the Nobel Prize, they notice that as they're speaking to him, he keeps on looking this way, keeps on looking this way, keeps on looking. And there's a couple of the, the um, newspaper guys got really ticked about it. They wrote about it, how he was rude. Because finally he excused himself and went over here where there was a proverbial little old woman trying to get off the train with two suitcases and couldn't handle it. Nobody was giving her a hand. But this famous individual walked over there, helped her down the platform, got her into the vehicle that she needed to get so that she could go on her way. One reporter wrote afterwards, despite my colleagues being upset, it was so good to see an actual sermon that was being practiced. 
That's the type of individual that we're talking about is God says you need that type of friend. You need somebody who is going to willingly serve God and serve others. That's the friend we're supposed to be. That's the friend we're supposed to look for. That's the type of individual that you and I need to become. Need to be an individual that others can look to and say, I want you. I need you to help me. I'm in those down moments and you're the type of person that can help me. You're the type of person that I could invest in and I could help you to grow in grace as you choose to mentor others who are young in the Lord, who need a leader, friend, mentor, somebody to help them to grow as you help, as they help you to grow. You look and say, okay, are these servants' attitudes and qualities, do we have this type of an attitude? We'll serve, we'll teach, we'll do the menial things that we will visit the elderly and the widows that nobody knows about, but it's a menial task that God says, here is true and undefiled religion. If you visit these people, if you go and see those who are the shut-ins. But it's not popular. It doesn't get the attention. Like some of the upfront ministries. But this is where God says is the real heart of ministry in Christianity. Here's a man that was willing to do it. And can I wrap up by saying he was loyal? He was loyal. As you go through the text... You find out that when, he is depart- when his master is departing, you can jump to chapter 2 of 2 Kings. The story unfolds that there they are 10 years later walking along and God has told Elijah, I'm going to take you home, I'm going to take you home. This is the story of the chariot, fiery chariot coming and taking him in the world, fiery whirlwind taking Elijah to heaven. And as you go through the story, Elijah says to Elisha, he says, Terry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha says to him in verse 2, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. So they go to Bethel. They go to Bethel and there, there he says, stay here. The older man says, stay here. Uh, I'm going to go on by myself to Gilgal. No, no, I'm going with you. We're not going to be separated. I'm not going to leave you. I've been with you for 10 years. I'm going to be loyal to you to the end. And then they end up over by Jericho, where he finally does get taken up into heaven. And even there, he says, stay here, stay here, while I go across the river. He says, no, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. He is so dedicated to his friend, he won't leave him at this moment. He's not going to depart from him. In fact, read the story and look at what happens as the, as the passage goes. Um, look at verse 3. The sons of the prophets, their schools of prophets, they that are at Bethel, they come and they say, Hey, Elisha, do you, don't you know your master's going to be taken away? The Lord's going to take him today? And look at how he responds. Yeah, I know it. Hold your peace. Twice these other prophets, these prophets in training say, Your master's leaving, you know. And he basically says, Be quiet. Now, why is that? Why does he basically say, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to discuss it with you guys. Is it because it's a great secret? Obviously it's not. Everybody knows he's going to be raptured that day. This is his homegoing day. So what is going on here? I think this. I think what's going on here is Elisha is saying, don't add to my sorrow. I love this man. Yes, when he leaves... It benefits me because I moved to the top notch. Yes, then I'm going to become the chief prophet. But I love him. In fact, when he's taken up, he calls out, My father, my father. This is a loyal friend. This is the type of friend that, that he's, he knows his, his best friend is leaving, but he's not looking forward to it. 
He knows it's better for him to be taken to heaven. But it's still going to cause him angst. So let's not talk about it right now. You don't need to add to my, my... I love this man. He's been my mentor. I love this man. He's done a lot for me. Yes, have I helped him out? Have I ministered? Have I poured water upon his hands? Absolutely. But I did it because I liked him. I loved him. That we serve together. That's a friend. That's a friend who's loyal this way. The type of friend that, that you know, they're going to they're gonna stick with you no matter what. Somebody put it this way. You want to know who your real friends are? Make a mistake. You'll find out. Can I, without, without canonizing any further an individual, can I share with you a story that, to me, was one of the most touching stories I've heard, seen? Yesterday when we were doing the funeral for Bud Olive, his kids put together a tribute. Any of you who know Bud, Bud was the epitome of a Christian gentleman. He, if you look in the dictionary for gentlemen, you'll see a picture of Bud Olive. He's just, just a class act Christian gentleman. Gracious, kind. Friend, one of the epitomes of friend. To his son, as he wrote and gave tribute, he recalls one of his dad's acts as a friend. My dad never failed to tell us kids and later as adults how much he loved us. After we kids had moved out of the house on Father's Day each year, he would send each one of us a handwritten letter, often multiple pages, expressing how much he valued us, admired us, and was proud of who we had become. The letters would always contain scripture verses that were personally selected for each of us. He sent these letters for years until dementia made his act, this act of love and friendship no longer possible. I saved every one of his letters and considered them to be the most valuable possession he ever gave me. This is friendship, even within a family. I remember after I moved up to Pennsylvania to be closer to my parents in their later years, I needed to take my dog, Deacon, to the vet early one morning for surgery as he had a tumor in his abdomen that needed to be removed. When I arrived at the vet's office at 7 a.m., I walked into the lobby and there was my dad waiting for me. He knew how much I loved this dog, and he wanted to have prayer with me prior to the dog's surgery. Deacon didn't survive the surgery that day, but I'll never forget how much it meant to me that my dad cared enough to be there that morning. That's friendship. That's a menial task. That's not preaching and, lay and, and getting down on somebody. That's just showing real friendship even within the family. That's the type of friend Elijah needed. That's the type of friend Elisha needed from Elijah. And they ministered to one another. Oh, and they ministered to the Lord. We could talk about how Elisha was loyal to God through all these different kings when the times were worse. But we bring it back to this idea. We bring it that here is an example of friendship laboring and what we need to do. Let me pause and make this comment before I give you the final thoughts. Number one, if you have a friend like this, praise God and thank them for being your friend today. You are one of the rare people that can say, I have a real mentoring, close relationship with somebody that has blessed my heart and, they, and I've blessed them. Let them know how much you appreciate them. It might be a family member. It might be a parent. It might be somebody you worship with. Let them know you appreciate their friendship.
What do you want to do as well is realize and remember godly friendships are mutually beneficial. If you have a godly friend, they are the type that they will help you to grow in grace as iron sharpens iron. And count it a blessing. Count it to to be a, a benefit, not just one way, but both ways. Let me add to this. You need to take the initiative to have such friendships. You need to do what these men did. They just didn't sit around and let it happen. They took the initiative. Elijah goes there. Elisha runs after him. To have a close friendship. If a man hath friends, he must show himself. You know, we all sit here. I'll guarantee what's going through the majority of people's minds. The majority of people sit here and say, I wish I had somebody that would do this to me. I wish I had somebody that would do this to me. Why don't you do this to somebody else? Why don't you flip the tables this morning instead of saying, here I am. I'm waiting for somebody to come and minister to me. Why don't you turn the tables, you take the initiative, and you minister to somebody else? There might be a young lady, a young man. There might be somebody who's who's older in age but young in the Lord who needs you, who could use you, a couple that could use you to help them, to encourage them, to point out with humility and hard work things that they need to do to help grow, to pour water over their hands at times when they are struggling, when they are having difficulty, to just sit and listen, to, to go and take a meal, to run them to the doctors, to babysit for them so they can have a time as a couple. Minister. Serve. Be this type of person. Put in your own life Elisha-like qualities that God can use in the life of another person to help them to grow. You need to be willing to serve friends in small, significant ways. Don't look for what they're doing for you. Look for what you can do for them. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. And no matter what, you serve God. You encourage that friend to serve God no matter what. And there's going to be difficult days. There's going to be trials. You serve God. You serve God. But let me, let me, with final thought, tell you if you are here this morning and you are looking for the friend, I want to introduce you for the next minute to the best friend possible. His name is Jesus Christ. We haven't talked about him much this morning. We've talked about earthly friends, but the Bible says there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. One who will lay down his life for his friend. That's what Jesus did for you. He gave his life for you so that you could have total forgiveness and be with him in heaven. That's a friend. That's the friend that many of us came to know by calling upon him to forgive us our sins and to give us eternal life. He is the friend that many of us have come to love, to realize that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That in whatever trial, whatever difficulty... He is faithful. He listens to us. He strengthens us. He encourages us. He's the friend that when others disappoint us, he never gives a disappointment. He listens. He cares. He works on our benefit. You need Jesus Christ. If you have never asked him to be your savior friend, this is the day to do it. This is the day you come and say, Jesus, I take you to be my eternal friend, to forgive me of all my sins.